This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 1st of September. In about two months' time, leaders from almost 200 countries are expected to gather in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for COP27, the annual United Nations Climate Change Conference. This conference is taking place on the back of numerous extreme weather events that have deeply affected Southeast Asia in recent times. Uh, floods has been a recurring problem in Malaysia for quite for the past few years. I think in 2014 we had very bad flooding that uh, sort of displaced 200,000 people. Let's take you to the Philippines now, where the number of people who have died after a super typhoon hit last week has risen to more than 375. Uh, we've heard from the Red Cross saying it is carnage in many areas, no power, no communication, very little. Dozens of people are now known to have died in Vietnam and Cambodia after heavy rain caused mass flooding. These events and the region's continued vulnerability against future climate-driven disasters have highlighted the urgent need for the international community to rally on a number of fronts. Today, we speak with Mr Sandeep Rai, a Senior Advisor for Global Climate Adaptation Policy at WWF Singapore, an environmental non-profit, on three topics on the table at COP27 that are especially relevant for Southeast Asia. One, how the region can adapt better to climate change. Two, where money to adapt would come from. And three, what happens when climate change causes losses and damages despite adaptation efforts. So welcome to the show, Sandeep. Thank you. So Sandeep, we've seen how Southeast Asia has recently been affected by a lot of disasters that could worsen with climate change. Things like floods and typhoons, for instance. So what do these events tell us about the ability of countries in our region to protect people and infrastructure from such events? Firstly, thank you so much. And just to highlight that currently we are just above 1.1 degree above pre-industrial level. And even at this temperature increase, we are seeing this catastrophic impact all around the world, including in Southeast Asia, right? And, and the evidence is really clear that we are not reducing the carbon dioxide emission fast enough and the and the impact that what we are seeing is just the tip of the iceberg i would say so uh, now if you come to the southeast asian region or which is i would say one of the vulnerable regions because what we have seen in different i would say countries in this region like in philippines and others i would say uh, this particular region is maybe lacking a little bit behind in terms of building climate resilience and also addressing to climate impacts the, and why i think why there is maybe just to highlight some of the facts. For example, maybe the countries in, in our region and may not know or may not understand the kind and the intensity of climate impact they are facing now and what they might face in the future. And second, the country infrastructure that, that you highlighted before is not really climate proof. What that means is 
is those infrastructures have not factored the climate risks while planning. And maybe the third component is, I would say, many of the countries are not really investing a lot in terms of climate action. But, but having said that, some of the countries, just to give example, uh, the country, our own country, Singapore, has really did some work. For example, during 2019, uh, National Rally, the Prime Minister announced that maybe Singapore will invest more than $100 billion for the next 100 years to tackle with sea level rise. And this is a good signal, signal in, the, in terms of adaptation coming from a very high level. And there are some other examples. For example, let's say the countries in our region, like Timor-Leste, or let's say in Cambodia, and even Vietnam has already prepared the National Adaptation Plan, which really outlines their adaptation needs. But they need to really implement it now. So what can be done about this? One of the key issues that is expected to be discussed at COP27 is a global goal for adaptation. So can you tell us what this actually means? What we can really do is, I would say, we really need to reduce our CO2 emission that is in line with what the scientific is saying there, right? Uh, because if we want to avoid the worst climate impact, then we really need to limit our global emission well below 1.5 degree above pre-initial level or even below that. And to do that, we definitely need to reduce our emission at least 50% by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050. Basically, is is a the global goal on adaptation. What it does is is help country to understand what are their vulnerability and climate risks into different temperature scenario and how to get there, right? Because the ultimate objective, as as I said before, is is, is terms of enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience, and reducing vulnerability. But this entirely depends upon how the temperature happens, right? Or, or how the how much emission you are cutting. Like I said, currently right now we are above 1.1 degree. But as if you don't stop the emission and if it goes continuously, we are around 2.4 degree temperature rise. So in that scenario, how the country needs to adapt? I think that that's where the global goal adaptation really comes in terms of country preparing their understanding the climate risks, understanding the vulnerability and, and how to measure that and what are the various support that is really needed to do that. So it's a is a aspirational, I would say, goal. And what the corporate is really trying to understand is how that can be accounted at the global level, like the nationally determined contribution, which is easy to quantify for mitigation target. So how to measure that, uh, how different action that is taken by individual country can be quantified at the global level for adaptation, and what are the support need by each country to do that or to implement those adaptation needs those are the things that will be discussed at COP27. But you know, as we have discussed earlier, adaptation strategies, whether it be early warning systems uh, for typhoons or better drainage system for avoiding floods, it can be pretty costly. Um, Singapore has plans to invest $100 billion over the long term to protect against rising sea levels. And even in the near term, we said that we have invested almost $2 billion since 2011 just to you know, keep flash floods away. So adaptation can be costly. Where is all this money going to come from? Uh, I think we need to look what the Paris Agreement said. Firstly, all the countries have agreed in the Paris Agreement that the developed country will financially support the developing country for their adaptation needs. And what we had seen by the latest scientific report of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, it outlines that only 4 to 8% of the climate finance is allocated for adaptation. So we are far beyond what is needed for the adaptation. Well, 
know, you talk, you are talking about where the money comes from. I, I said it's definitely from a developed country. I would say, and I would say the good starting point is is maybe the developed country can scrap the fossil fuel subsidy. I think there is billions of dollars that can come from the fossil fuel subsidy that can invest on on their person. Singapore is is capable enough to put their money on by their own, but there are many other countries in the region, like like the LDCs, like Timor Leste and others, where they may not have financial resources to do so. So, as per the Paris Agreement, as per the UNFCCC Convention, and the money for to support the Arabian action will come from developed country, but it's far from what is really needed and what is going right now. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Yeah, so just picking up the point on developed countries, you know, they had earlier promised to channel 100 billion US dollars in climate finance, its annual climate finance, to developing countries by 2020. But so far, that total has not yet been delivered, even though the worst aspects of climate change is just becoming more and more apparent. But another key issue that will also be discussed at COP27 is the proportion of this money that is going to be set aside for adaptation. You know, you've just mentioned that the amount for adaptation is being spent at the moment is a fraction of what's needed. But a lot of the funds now are meant for mitigation or cutting emissions for activities such as renewable energy projects that can help cut or reduce the amount of greenhouse gas uh, emissions in the atmosphere. So why is adaptation financing shaping up to be so contentious? Uh, yeah, like you said, in 2009, during COP15 in Copenhagen, where the developed country agreed to mobilize $100 billion annually by 2024 climate actions, that includes both mitigation and, and adaptation work. And we as a civil society uh, and many other civil society really vocal for at least 50% of the, those funding needs to go for climate adaptation. But as we discussed before, they are in terms of adaptation uh, funding this is far behind and that what has been committed so far. And though the adaptation money is, is, is moving in the right direction that we need, but it still is a contentious issue because there are a couple of things that we need to understand. Uh, firstly, the adaptation project is hard to quantify and it's very difficult to see or show that the particular project is really building in resilience for people and nature. And in contrast, if you look in the in the mitigation aspect, where you can quantify the, the amount of greenhouse gas reduced by a particular project. And second thing is, many of the adaptation projects looks like a development project or is embedded in a development project. So it's really hard to distinguish what's the adaptation project and, and what's the development project. And, and thirdly, there may not be a good understanding in, of what the current impacts are, and how this impact might change in the, in the future. So in, in some way, because many of the adaptation acts and what we see right now is only trying to address the current need, but not really been able to forecast what the future, I would say, uh, risks, climate risks. So, so that's also a, a difficult point to, I would say, to quantify and difficult point to showcase. The fourth component I was really highlight that's much more prominent is that for the mitigation projects, let's say for renewable energy projects and others, it really generates revenue for the investor. And there is a lot of private finance institutions really can play a role on mitigation projects. Unlike in the adaptation projects, 
it's really hard to make money when you are helping the most vulnerable people to add up, right? So, so there is there is not much incentive from a private sector to do a work on adaptation. But now it's slowly changing because I think private sector also really want to look into the supply chains and how to build climate, how to address the climate risks. But all, but most important thing, what I from my personal belief is that many developed country, eh, mostly, but or, or until now they have not really faced the climate impacts that what we are seeing in developing countries. So they cannot really relate the dire situation that millions of people are facing themselves. Right? But this is changing now, I would say. You know, what we are seeing, the extreme weather events are, are also recorded in many developed countries. So based on that, maybe we can see some dynamic change as we move, move along or as we move along COP27. So, Sandeep, we did talk about the need for countries in Southeast Asia to better prepare themselves for climate change through adaptation and the problem with raising funds for this. But there are also limits to how much a country can adapt, right? And losses and damages, whether from um, loss of lives or damaged infrastructure, are expected to worsen every time disaster strikes. And this is going to get worse, I mean, if there are more and more greenhouse gases being emitted. So what can we expect to be discussed at COP27 on this front? Firstly, yes, I would say everything has its limits and adaptation and to cope with the climate impacts also has its limits. And this has been really outlined with the latest, the intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC report. And the loss and damage is, is a new reality. Uh, we can say new reality because this is really coming forward. And at COP27, I would say there are two issues that can be discussed on the issue of loss and damage. First one is the the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage, which is a technical facility that helps country to identify the losses and damages that will occur from climate-related disaster. And the second component is, uh, is about the loss and damage finance and or how the money will channel channelize or where the money will be generated for to address loss and damage. This is a very contentious issue. And let's hope that we agree these two components will be agreed at COP27. But loss and damage is not exactly a new topic. And climate vulnerable nations have long called for the establishment of a financing facility that will enable them to draw on this compensation for losses and damages incurred. So what are the main bones of contention on this subject now? Uh, firstly, the, the evergreen contentious issue at the climate talk is always about where the money where is the money and, and, and who's going to pay for loss and damage and where it will come from. And, and like you said, in the view of the developed country, loss and damage is equal to compensation. And, and if there is a legal obligation in terms of the financial agreement that at the international level, they don't really approve, to, or approve those proposals or, or the resolution. Because in the in the UNFCCC, everything, all the resolution is is based on the consensus, right? So in the developed country point of view, they see loss and damage. If they see loss and damage as a liability issue, then they will not really they agree on those decisions. So it is evolving, but we we really have to. It's still it's time for us to see how that really moves moves forward. But anything to do with the liability issue for the loss and damage finance is always has been a red line for a developed country. But things are slowly moving forward because they are also experiencing those kind of, I would say, extreme weather events and also losses and damages. So let's hope you know, 
these things will be sorted uh, sooner than later. So, Sandeep, earlier this year, we also saw many Pacific Island nations backing a campaign led by Vanuatu, a small island state, to get the International Court of Justice, which is the world's highest court, to issue an opinion on the obligations that countries have to protect the rights of present and future generations from harmful climate change impacts. So, how do you think you know this ongoing case will affect the discussions on loss and damage at COP27? Well, firstly, I think it's a very good point that Vanuatu, as a small island, which is really impacted by climate change, is doing this. And definitely, this will, uh, I would say, spark a discussion at the global level uh, in terms of, let's say, spark the discussion at the global level in terms of that this is the issue that cannot really shy away from this. We need to somehow address this issue. And I hope at COP27, and the issue of loss and damage will be at the at the high political level, and there might be some uh, a concrete step in terms of how to move forward, especially in terms of uh, how the loss and damage finance can be mobilized, and what are the terms and conditions for that, and 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 how the the Santiago network can be able to have the vulnerable countries in terms of identifying their losses and damages. And this is not only the case of, I would say, say Vanuatu or Ismail Island instead. If you look at our neighboring country like Pakistan, for example, which contributes, let's say, 1% of the global greenhouse gas emission, we have seen a devastating, I would say, extreme rise in temperature, temperature in, let's say, in, in earlier this year. And, and right now we have seen extreme flooding where, where thousands of people have been have been died, which is sad. And but these are some of the I would say testimony that that what we are already seeing. In, and it's good that Vanuatu is doing that. But this is also an uh, I would say alarm bell for for the developed country to not to shy away from this is important and critical issue. But how we can really move forward in terms of addressing those those elements. So Sandeep, just to, as a final question. What would you consider a good outcome for Southeast Asia at COP27? I would say three things um, that comes to my mind when we say the good outcome from the COP27. The, the first one is the parties at, at COP27 really we must respond to the emission gap by some by submitting the, the enhanced NDC or I would say the national climate plans as soon as possible. Because as we have seen, and that there is a huge gap Bit, you know, what country has places to do by 2030 with respect to what they, they are already agreed in the Paris Agreement of limiting 1.5. And even the, the IPCC is, is really making that much more strongly. So if those, I would say, decision is agreed at the COP, it's not only beneficial for the Southeast Asia, but to the rest of the world. That's the first thing in terms of updating the NDC in, in, or enhancing the NDC in line with the with the with the science, right. The second thing is more on on a good decision on the adaptation finance. Well, what we had seen in Glasgow that developed country has really agreed to double the adaptation financing by twenty twenty five with the baseline of twenty nineteen. So the, we need to ensure that they fulfill those commitment and not only doubling the adaptation finance, but also go beyond that. To ensure that at least fifty percent of the public climate finance coming from developed country is dedicated for adaptation, and that's really helps for Southeast Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian countries, and beyond. And lastly, and most important one, of establishing the loss and damage finance facility, which will really help to address the losses and damages that's occurring right now, 
and also that may occur in the coming future. So these are, are I would say, three things and that will be really, if we get a good decision on these three key points, that will be really good for our region. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sandy. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me in this studio. Really nice talking to you all. Thanks so much, Sandy. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.